I was about 18 years old. My father was dying. He knew it. I knew it. We were living in Brooklyn at the time. And uh, he called me into his room and he said, Steve, as you know, we don't have any money. He said, but I'm going to leave you with a piece of advice that hopefully someday will be worth much more than just simple money. And he said, there are three categories of people in this world. The first category of person is the individual who goes into the office or goes into whatever he or she may be doing and puts their feet up on the desk and proceeds to dream and dreams all day long, 24 hours a day, never once doing anything about those dreams. He said the second category of person is the individual who goes into the office at about four in the morning and proceeds to work 20 hours a day, never stopping once to dream. He said the third category of person is the individual who walks into the office in the morning, puts their feet up on the desk, dreams for about an hour, and then gets off the desk and does something about their dreams. He said, go into the third category only for one reason. There's no competition. <laughs> Unfortunately, that has been true. I hope it's not true from this point on. Uh, as you heard, I started in a weird way. Uh, I started, as a matter of fact, in a high-style bathing suit. I was a salesman for little girls' high-style bathing suits. I hated every moment of it uh, because the only way we could make a profit was by possibly paying people uh, below standard or at least at least what I thought standard should be. Uh, while I was there, an uncle-in-law of mine came to me. They owned some funeral chapels in New York City and he said uh, he knew I hated what I was doing, and he said, uh, we have a particular problem. We own some limousines, some 100 limousines that are losing money for us, uh, uh, and we run them for all the funeral directors in New York City. Uh, would you like to come and work for us and see if you could straighten it out? I asked where the location was. He told me I went up to the garage, and I sat there for two days, and what I saw is the limousines came in and... Um, they went out in the morning at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, and came back at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And that happened for two days in a row. I, after the second day, there was a um, very large limousine company at that time in New York City called Cary Limousine. So I picked up the phone, I called Cary and asked if I could come over and chat with them about an idea I had, and they wanted to know what the idea was, and I said, suppose I could rent you 100 limousines in the evening for $10 a limousine, you supply the insurance, and you supply the driver, and just return it to me fully washed and clean by 8 o'clock the following morning. He said, of course, that's impossible. I said, well, don't you do 
70, 80 percent, I would guess, of your business in the evening? He said, yes, but uh, you couldn't use them during the day. And I said, well, if I could, what would you say to that? I, he said, we'd have a deal. So that uh, at that moment in time, we were losing $40,000. We made that deal. Instead of losing $40,000, we uh, earned $300,000 that following year. Unfortunately, when I say we, I talked myself out of a job because they didn't need me anymore. <laughs> but they thought maybe I could do something for them in the funeral business. So I went to work in the funeral business. And uh, maybe about a year after I was there, someone came to me, a young fellow that was working for a rental car company and wanted to know if he could lease or rent their vehicles to us instead of us laying out all the capital to buy them. Uh, and I became very interested in the rent-a-car business and asked this individual if he ever thought of going into business for himself. He said many, many times, and especially the rent-a-car business, but he had one problem. I said, what's that? He said, I have no money. I said, I have none either. <laughs> but why don't we see what we can do? And um, I went to a bank bank that was known as Hanover Trust, now manufactures Hanover Trust, and each one of us put up $100, and we borrowed $250,000 and bought 100 cars. So you can tell how long ago that was. Uh, but that was a very interesting experience, uh, because that was the start of really having the feeling of being an entrepreneur. But after a year's hard work, we were going nowhere fast, absolutely nowhere. There was no reason why anyone should rent a car from us, as opposed to Hertz, Avis, National, or anyone else. One night, I woke up and I said, gee, maybe if we could provide an additional service. And when you're in the service industry, you have to be the best in it. Otherwise, you have to get out, or you have to give more service than anyone else. And I said, suppose we give free parking when we rent a car. Most people, when they rent a car, will leave Manhattan, not stay in Manhattan. But the free parking on the slight occasion when they may need it will be very meaningful because parking costs a lot. To make a long story short, uh, we contacted a parking company. We started at the top, not the bottom. Went to the yellow pages, counted locations, found the location a particular company that had more locations than anyone else. We called them and said we have a simple proposition to make it. That uh, we have 100 cars, we've been in business one year, we're going nowhere fast. Uh, however, if you allow us to change our name to your name, which was Kinney, you have 60 locations throughout Manhattan, we'll give you 25% of our company for nothing and you won't have to put up any money, and we have the cars financed, and your uh, parking attendants will act as our rental agents, and we'll have the lowest overhead and more location than Hertz, Avis, and National put together. Uh, we did that. The following year, we went from 100 cars to 3,000 cars. And we had a particular problem because we were almost putting the parking people out of business, not because people were using free parking, but because of storage. But time passed, and approximately in 1969, uh, we had been studying the entertainment business for a while. We thought it had tremendous 
growth, especially the music aspect of it. And there was a company that we were able to acquire called Warner Seven Arts. Warner Seven Arts had a movie company that was losing enormous sum of money and had a very fine, small record company. Uh, in the midst of that uh, acquisition, and we had announced that we were going forward with it, we hadn't signed the completed papers. Uh, family came to visit me, along with their 14-year-old son, very good friends of mine. He said, gee, Steve, I'm really excited that you're going to acquire Warner Seven Arts, that we have a, uh, I think that's the best record company there is, because uh, they own a company called Atlantic. And uh, Atlantic has this genius, Ahmed Erdogan, uh, who is without a doubt the dean of the music business. And you know what he just did? He just um, created a group called Blind Faith, which is Stevie Winwood on the organ, uh, plus the old creams. I hadn't the slightest idea what this kid was talking about. And he said, and they just booked Madison Square Garden without ever cutting a record. Them. Erdogan's really a genius. So I became very, even more excited about it. However, I heard through the grapevine that Ahmed didn't like the idea of coming to work for someone that was in rent-a-car and parking, and at one time was in funerals, and he just couldn't see that. And uh, I called an associate of mine, and the two of us went uh, out to dinner with Ahmed. I called Ahmed, introduced myself, and my associate knew that the only single artist on the label of Warner Seven Arts at that time that I had ever heard of was a fellow by the name of Frank Sinatra. <laughs> and my associate and I went out to dinner with Ahmed, and we met from about 7 o'clock at night till about midnight. And we couldn't convince Ahmed to come with us. And finally, Ahmed said, uh, let me just show you Steve, you just won't understand our business and how we must do our thing. Uh, he said, there's a group, a group called Blind Faith. And I said, Ross, if you ever think, think now. What did that 14-year-old kid tell you? And I said, uh, Blind Faith. Oh, I said, oh, you mean Stevie Winwood on the organ plus the old creams? <laughs> <laughs> My associate, Ted Ashley, fell over his chair in a dead faint, <laughs> totally backwards. Ahmed jumped up. As, I don't know if Ahmed's in the room, but he jumped up and said, yeah, man, yeah, that's the one, and we signed the deal right there. Uh, I think, uh, needless to say, that 14-year-old boy's been on our mailing list ever since, has every record we've ever made. Uh, I think if you'd ask me what I've learned, uh, I mean, we did go public in 1962 and had a $13.5 million market value. We maybe now have $5.5 billion market value and lots of assets all over the place. But that's not important because our most important asset by far is our management. And that's something that walks out of the door every single night. Thank God with us, they return in the morning. 
Uh, Ahmed and I have been together 19 years. Uh, we have had no changes in our record division in 19 years. In our motion picture division, we've had one change in 19 years. We've been in cable since 1970, only because when we investigated buying Warner Seven Arts, we wanted to know what would change out there. We had to do homework to see what would change the motion picture industry, and therefore we put records. We bought cable companies because we knew that would change in that sense. And the record companies, we made sure had its own distribution because all our homework that we did suggested in 1970 that there was going to be something in the future called audio-video cassettes, and we better prepare for it. How to prepare for it was to get a distribution worldwide so that we had our record company set up its own distribution in every city in the entire world, so that when video cassettes came, we were in overnight in every single city, and we are the largest in that. What I learned is continuity is important, autonomy is so important to give people the authority, but never relinquish the responsibility. Uh, encourage people to make mistakes. I can't underline that enough. Uh, and make sure that they're errors of commission. You know what'll sink you? Errors of omission. When you get saying, gee, I should have done, that'll sink you. You'll do it, you'll make a mistake, you'll do it better the next time. Uh, as a matter of fact, we have to have a rule with our division head. If I have an argument with our division head, put aside a large, very large capital expenditure, but if I have an argument with him and we can't convince each other, we'll go their way because he's the pro in that division. So you have to give people that lead way. I think everyone must be a risk taker. Otherwise, just sit back and clip coupons. Don't invest, don't do anything else but do that. Your word must be your bond. Very important that you be a good listener. It's amazing how much you'll pick up, how much you'll learn. Keep on a fast track and avoid bottlenecks at all costs. Dream and make the dreams come true. And very important to remember that there are only three ways in this entire world to avoid criticism. That's to say nothing, to do nothing, to be nothing. Thank you very much.